This is TechSnap, episode 418, for December 13th, 2019. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and of course, I'm joined by Jim. Hello, Jim. What's up, Wes? Well, Jim, we've heard lots about 5G over the last couple of years, but it looks like we might actually be starting to see it in our real everyday devices. I noticed earlier this month, T-Mobile launched its 600 megahertz, quote-unquote, 5G across the U.S., although at the time they launched it, there weren't any phones that could use it. That's changed now, but I think it kind of highlights a trend that we've seen so far in 5G. Lots of hype, lots of terms. But for a long time, starting with AT&T, there's been some confusion about what is 5G, what counts as 5G, and how do we know if we actually have it? Yeah, there's still a lot of confusion about that. Um, I, I think part of the worst of it is that everybody wants to tout the amazing advantages of 5G when what they really mean is 5G FR2, not 5G FR1. What that's all about is there's a frequency one and a frequency two. Frequency one is sub six gigahertz 5G, and that's the same you know basic spectrum range that our existing 4G LTE runs on, and it shares most of the same RF propagation characteristics. There's nothing radically new about 5G FR1. Uh, it has the potential to scale a little bit better in more dense urban environments and timeshare a little bit better. But it's just not really groundbreaking. Right. According to T-Mobile's claims, in some places, 600 megahertz 5G will be a lot faster than LTE. But in others, customers won't see much of a difference. And I guess that's what you're saying, right? In, in dense urban environments, some of the new algorithms that are taking place on the same old frequency bands as LTE might have an impact. But by and large, it just can't be that much different because it's it's the same frequency range. Well, I, you know, Wes, I'm also pretty cynical because this is still, at this point, pretty unproven technology. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of wild claims about how great it will be and how much better of a job it will do. But we don't really know until we see it actually deployed in the wild and, you know, see what changes, if any, there are. Um, you know, 4G was also shockingly fast when it was first deployed. And the reason it was so shockingly fast is almost nobody was on it. You know, by the time uh, it, it becomes the mainstream, you know, most widely adopted technology, then that initial advantage of like, you know, I'm one of the like 500 people in my major metro area who are using this frequency, that's gone because now you're sharing it with a couple million other people. The same thing is going to happen with 5G FR1, and it may or may not be significantly better. And I just, I'm not willing to blindly trust anybody's assertions until we see how it actually does. I like that approach. FR1 is not the 5G that most people are hearing, you know, these amazing claims about how super fast and low latency it is. That's 5G FR2. FR2 is also known as millimeter wave 5G. It's extremely high frequency. We're talking like the 24 gigahertz range. And its propagation characteristics are very, very different. The millimeter wave 5G FR2, it's only good to about one mile with clear line of sight from tower to receiver, and uh, it, you know, it won't penetrate buildings or walls or windows. As a matter of fact, even if you turn around and get your head in between your phone and the nearest FR2 tower, that may be enough to interrupt the signal. It also doesn't work well with moving targets. You need to be you know, stationary and not moving around much. 
FR2 does actually have the potential to be a pretty great technology, but not in your phone. It's more of a site-to-site link kind of thing. Right. So you might use this around the city to, to connect office buildings or, or apartment buildings to upstream or a different use case. Well, and to be fair, not just in the city. I mean, it would be amazing out in a rural environment as well where, you know, you might have, let's say you might have 20, maybe 30 homes within a mile of, you know, a, a hill that you can put a tower on. And you can put up that tower and have a very stable, uh, you know, high bandwidth point-to-point link from each of those houses to the tower without having to dig miles and miles of, you know, trenches to put cable in. That's a big deal. You mentioned high speed there, Jim. How fast are we talking with 5G, at least 5G FR2? Well, Wes, you know, how fast your link might be with 5G FR2 is dependent on a lot of things. Uh, It depends on the exact channel that you're using, It can depend on atmospheric conditions, um, and it depends on the modulation you're using. Like, you know, are you doing 64 cam or 256 cam? Uh, What's your scaling factor? You know, yada, 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 yada. At the end of the day, you might be looking at real-world throughput of somewhere around 2 gigabits. Um, But again, you know, that's FR2. FR1, uh, it's another one of those things that it sounds really impressive until you look at what came before, 5G FR1 is capable of a gigabit, which sounds amazing until you realize so is 4G. So what are we really gaining here? Is this more about latency? Well, Wes, if you're talking about FR2, you can have extremely low latency. The, uh, you know, the air latency may be as low as like 8 to 10 milliseconds on FR2. With FR1, the lowest possible latency isn't really very different than it was with 4G. However, in theory, due to better time sharing in really densely saturated environments, you may still see lower real-world latencies in the middle of like a crowded city block. But again, we kind of have to be a little skeptical here and just see what it looks like when it gets here. You know, Wes, what we haven't talked about yet is how and why 5G absolutely actually will make your brand new flagship phone suck more this year than it did the last year. Wait, make it suck more? Shouldn't it make it faster, better, lower latency, Jim? Well, so the problem is that, uh, you know, Qualcomm has released the specs on next year's Snapdragon, and it's not only not going to have the 5G modem uh, built into the system on chip, it's going to be an external modem. It's also moving the 4G modem out of the actual processor die and, you know, into an external device again. And that's going to mean higher power consumption, more heat generation, lower battery life, whether you're using 4G or 5G. Is there a legitimate reason on the Qualcomm side to want to make this move? Especially considering most people will probably still be using LTE primarily? I, you know, I, I have a lot of trouble coming up with one other than, you know, wanting to even the playing field between 4G and 5G and not give the existing 4G systems a leg up on the newer 5G ones that, uh, you know, that will have to be off die. Ah, uh, so this is a this is a push for five G, basically. That's the only way I can really interpret it. Um, you know, you you can't really deploy a five G only phone right now. There's just there's not enough networks anywhere, and that would make a lot of people angry. You know, out of those people who didn't know enough to buy one, they'd be very mad very quickly. So right now, you're going to have to have both five G and four G on every phone, and I guess they just didn't have enough room for both a five G and four G modem on die with the CPU. So they said, well, if you can't have one, you can't have the other either. So what are the actual implications of that? How far away is it? Is it going to make things slower or is it just worse battery life? I've seen some speculation that it's going to make speed slower, but I don't really think I buy into that. 
Um, there's no getting around that it will increase power consumption and heat generation and therefore decrease your battery life. But I don't really see any reason to expect lower speeds. You know, Wes, one interesting question about this is, you know, there's I, I think it's a fairly low chance, but there is some chance for this to help unseat Qualcomm as the undisputed flagship Android processor king. You know, there are other folks building ARM CPUs that go in phones right now. You know, Samsung has their Exynos line. Now, those don't get deployed to phones in the U.S. Those are only going into overseas phones right now. Um, but so there's Samsung's Exynos, uh, MediaTek builds CPUs for phones, and, uh, you know, Apple's building their own ARM CPUs. It reminds me of our desktop and server processing world where... We've recently seen with Intel, a few stumbles can go a long way for your competitors. They really can. You know, one thing in particular to watch out for there, Wes, is uh, Intel and MediaTek have partnered up recently on building 5G into ARM CPUs via the uh, Helios M70 modem. I thought Intel was getting out of the modem game. Well, you know, it's a little complicated. They actually did get out of the consumer 5G modem game, but now they're partnering with MediaTek. MediaTek designs them and builds them, but Intel has input on the initial specifications, and they also get involved in qualification afterwards and in designing the software drivers to run them. Ah, okay, this is complicated. It is complicated, and I think it's going to be a really great move for both companies. Intel clearly needed to tighten their hardware focus, Frankly, MediaTek can use Intel's help with brand recognition and, you know, maybe just a, a little of the old QA. Uh, MediaTek makes an awful lot of parts, but they don't necessarily always have the best reputation because where MediaTek falls down is the integration. I don't think Intel's going to let that continue to be a weak point in advice that they're partnered up on. This Intel-MediaTek collaboration, it's not for smartphone processors. It's actually for peripherals that could go into, you know, general purpose PC equipment. But I still think it's a really interesting partnership that could go a long way. Well, keeping on the mobile front, Jim, we've got some good news and an update to a story we've talked about before. It looks like the Librem 5 has actually made it into the hands of some backers. Can confirm, Wes. I was very happy to see that... Uh, one of the readers over at Ars Technica got their Birch Librem 5 phone uh, right around Thanksgiving, right when uh, Weaver promised that they should start arriving. Okay, so you mentioned Birch there. Can you remind us all about how this process is actually working and some of the differences that backers might get now versus devices we're expecting in the future? Yeah, it's important to remember that the Librem 5, you know, it, it's there's no, you don't buy it at a store. It's a crowdfunded product. Um, it still doesn't actually exist as a full retail device. And uh, the backers are getting phones in five batches. Librem has a fancy tree name for every one of them, but I'm just going to go ahead and go, you know, old school military phonetic and say Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo. Um, yeah, Birch is the, uh, the B out of that A to E progression. In theory, at first, backers are supposed to start receiving phones with the initial batch, the Aspen. Um, but those only ended up going to, you know, employees of the company and some unspecified insiders, presumably under an NDA, because absolutely no pictures or any report of anything with Aspen came out from anybody but uh, Brian Lunduke, who was working for the company as their PR person at the time. Birch is the next batch after Aspen, and the initial shipping window for Birch had come and gone, and nobody had received any Birch phones. And, you know, there's a lot of 
kind of ugly rumor mill floating around, you know, that, you know, oh, hey, you know, nobody's gotten any phones yet. Nobody confirmed anybody has received one. What's going on? So, uh, you know, I, I put on my Ars Technica reporter hat and got hold of the CEO, Todd Weaver, and asked what was going on with that. And um, long story short is the basically the back half of the Birch shipment, um, about 100 of those phones did actually go out to backers. And one of those was an Ars Technica reader who was kind enough to share some pictures and some thoughts and, uh, you know, some stories about his experiences with it. Yeah, if you want to go see those pictures, we'll have... Jim's write-up linked over at techsnap.system slash 418. From what you can tell, Jim, what's the experience like with one of these Birch units? Well, that kind of depends on your perspective, Wes. If you're going in with a Birch unit and you're expecting to have a fully functional phone, you're going to be wildly unhappy. Uh, the phone can't really effectively make calls right now because the uh, the audio cuts out when you try to make a phone call, something that will have to be fixed in software later. Um, the mechanical experience, uh, you know, I haven't actually had my hands on one yet. I'm hoping that will happen in the next week or two. But, uh, you know, according to our, our reader who did get one of the Birch phones, it's, it's pretty good. The phone feels sexy in your hand. Um, it is noticeably thick, but, uh, you know, the, it's, it's chamfered on the back and it apparently fits really well in the hand. Um, the biggest problem right now, you know, if you're willing to hand wave that you can't make calls on this phone and look at it as just sort of a, well, you know, it's, it's a relatively high performance, you know, Linux device that fits in your pocket with a touchscreen and a battery. The battery is a real problem. Uh, it was supposed to be a 3,500 milliamp hour battery. And the one that our reader received only had a 2000 milliamp hour battery in it. And absolutely none of the power optimization has been done yet. So, you know, we're talking a runtime that's in minutes, not hours. Yeah, okay, that sounds difficult. I will say, though, that I am somewhat interested in a little Linux device I could keep in the back of my pocket and actually have full control over. I don't know that I would want to replace my Android phone anytime soon, and obviously right now I practically couldn't, but I only really use Android as an appliance, and I love having something I could play with more. Absolutely, Wes. I mean, you know, I'm a Librem 5 backer myself, and that's exactly what I'm really looking forward to. I, I never really had a whole lot of faith that it would replace, you know, my Android flagship phone as a daily driver for a phone. But, you know, as just a digital Swiss army knife that I could stick in my pocket and be able to do some of the things that are getting increasingly difficult on newer versions of Android, like scan Wi-Fi networks, it sounds pretty cool to me. Anyway, moving on and addressing some of your other questions about the batches, we talked about Aspen and Birch, but you know, basically the the, the separate batches just get a little bit more polished with each one. Uh, Evergreen, the the last one, that's going to be the first actual retail product. Everything prior to Evergreen, you know, the A through D batches, those are all prototypes. Those batches don't have FCC certification for the phone as a unit, only for the individual radios. And they actually only even can be given to people as prototypes. Ah, so we're not even in the phase yet where these can really be considered products. No, they're not. I mean, technically, you literally cannot buy one right now. Um, it would be an FCC violation if they were to sell you one. Uh, you can get access to a prototype as one of the producers of the product, but they can't sell them retail. All right, Wes, so we covered batches A through E, and you know that was that was the full set of initial shipment batches that you know ends with Evergreen, the final retail product that's fully FCC licensed. All the hardware stuff is done, all the software is working, the whole nine. 
Futurism has also added an F batch. Uh, I don't know, probably fur. Um, fur is a an unspecified quote next generation unquote that's just supposed to be newer and better and different. But like literally, as far as I'm aware, nothing concrete has been said about that other than that it will be a new batch. Maybe a, a catch-all at the end to a, a place to apply lessons learned along the way with the other batches. It does, or if, you know, if you're really cynical, that could serve as just, you know, evidence that they're running low on cash and they need to keep getting people to pre-order so they can keep the company running until they really do have retail sales and, you know, not just shipping prototypes to early backers. Uh, you know, the other thing along those lines is, and I, I got to be honest, you know, I, I really want this project to succeed. I got my own personal money in it, and I want my Librem 5 to get here and be great, but the company announced a, a, a made-in-the-USA version of the Librem where all the parts and assembly and everything else will only happen in the United States that uh, is, you know, the idea is this is supposed to alleviate supply chain attack concerns for very security-minded people. Right, if you're very paranoid, you really need your, your privacy and security intact, well, you have a little more assurance here that at least it stayed in the country. Yeah, um, but yeah, the price, the... The Librem 5 is already pretty overpriced for what it is at $700. Um, $700 is what it cost me to back it. It's what the phone is expected to retail for, you know, when you're literally just buying them. The USA Librem 5 is $2,000. Wow. For the same phone. Oh, it's the same phone. That's not like there's a upgrades plan. No, there's no upgrade. It's just all made in the USA. And, um, it strikes me as kind of sketchy to suddenly be announcing that we're doing this and you can pre-order this thing now that costs almost three times as much as the regular one, despite being the same thing, despite still not actually having a product yet. It's just, uh, it's weird. Well, this seems like another case of a project we'll have to keep our eyes on. When do we expect the next batch to go out? I'm not really sure about the next batch, and I kind of hate to speculate about that one. Um, there were only, and again, according to Weaver, roughly 100 phones that went out to backers in Birch. Um, I don't think the, uh, I, I forget the tree names, but I don't think Charlie and Delta are going to be a whole lot different in that. There should be somewhat larger numbers of backers receiving those phones, but I still don't think it's going to be huge. Uh, Weaver said that the majority of the thousands of orders that they have are going to go out in Evergreen. And he said that he is expecting Evergreen right now uh, around March, which I, you know, I wouldn't bet anything you couldn't afford to lose on that. You know, Wes, I do want to take this opportunity to remind everybody, when you see a crowdfunded project on Kickstarter or Indiegogo or even some companies, you know, own completely running solo effort to crowdfund something, that's not a store. You're not looking at buying a product. You're looking at producing one. You're taking the job of production, meaning funneling money into a direction that you think will be interesting for the industry. That's what you're doing is making that investment to help influence where an industry goes. You may or you may not ever get an actual concrete product out of that. If that's not a level of risk that you're willing to take, or that's not something that you're interested in doing, you absolutely should not participate. With that said, Librem is, in my opinion, moving the telephony industry in a very interesting direction with its embrace of, you know, completely open source and freedom respecting technologies, both software and hardware. And even if I don't get a Librem 5, I'm actually not going to regret my $700 investment because they have contributed so much software work upstream that 
I fully believe it will help a lot of other projects down the road, no matter what ultimately happens with the Librem 5 itself. I'll certainly be curious to see how this goes. And like you said, you know, we're hoping this works out. It's obviously a difficult task that Purism is taking on here. Hopefully we'll have a handy Linux device that fits in your pocket that also respects your freedom sometime soon. Well, when you do get your hands on a Librem device, you're probably going to be using it on Wi-Fi at least to start. So probably want your Wi-Fi to be pretty darn good. There's been a mesh Wi-Fi system out there, kind of one of the earlier well-known systems. And I've been secretly waiting for you to do a review, Jim. We actually have one of these systems here at the studio, and we've been pretty happy with it. So I was curious what you would think, notable Wi-Fi skeptic and tester extraordinaire. What am I talking about? Well, of course, it's Eero. You know, Wes, I've always liked Eero. I've, I haven't always been real sure where it stood in terms of, you know, the whole price to performance slider, but the devices themselves have always had good hardware design. They've had, you know, good furniture design. They've never made anything ugly that you wouldn't want to have in your home. That's an important factor. Yeah. And, you know, people have responded really well to the app design. It's just, it's, it's an overall really well-rounded product. Now, when Amazon acquired Eero, they actually mandated some changes in hardware design that ended up being a really good idea. Eero had gotten, yeah, maybe a little too funky, a little bit too expensive. The first generation Eero were just basically, you know, little flat white lozenges, and they were all identical. Now, the second generation of Eero, and this is still prior to the Amazon acquisition, they made a change, and they had Eero routers, and they had Eero beacons. The Eero router was a tri-band device. It looked a lot like the first-generation Eero. And the beacon was something that plugged directly into wall outlets. It had no Ethernet jacks on it. It was Wi-Fi backhaul only, and it had a funky little nightlight on it. And greatly to my surprise, you know, you hear something like it, and you're like, a nightlight, great, who wants that? Greatly to my surprise, the nightlight actually looked great on those things. It was really attractive. Uh, it could be disabled if you didn't want it, but it looked really good, and it made a really good amount of ambient, very soft, yellowish-white light, you know, that could help you not trip over things in a room at night. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that. And if it gives me Wi-Fi, I mean, great. Yeah, it was, it was legitimately a cool design. Unfortunately, it was expensive to manufacture. So Eero Plus 2 Beacons was definitely a crowd-pleaser. They sold a lot of these units, but they were pretty costly. You know, it was $400 for that three-piece kit. And, uh, you know, they they weren't really on the top of the pile performance-wise because the beacons were dual-band only. They had no Ethernet jacks. They did well. They were reliable. But it was, you know, more that I don't mind spending a little bit more and, you know, I want just kind of an overall well-rounded product. Yeah, a little, a little more premium. Yeah, it wasn't what you would choose either for I want the best possible performance or, you know, I want a really inexpensive kit. Now, when Amazon acquired Eero, they made some changes. They said these things are just too expensive to manufacture. So what we're going to do is we're going to say, no, we want you to make all three devices be the same thing. So there's no two separate product lines. We can just throw these things out en masse with a three-piece kit consisting of all the same thing. We're going to have Ethernet jacks on all three of them. All three are going to be dual band. We're going to get rid of that nightlight because it was too expensive to manufacture. So now what we've got is we've got little white lozenges again. They're a little thicker than the first or the second generation Eero, but they're all, you know, desktop mount. They all have two gigabit Ethernet jacks. They're all dual band. And because of that streamlining of the process, man, they are cheap. 
When they're not on sale, a kit of three pieces of these Amazon Eros goes for 250 bucks. That's as low as a Deco M5, which was, you know, my big budget pick before this. On sale right now, you can get these things for 190 bucks for three piece with an Echo Dot thrown in for free. That's a uh, price per unit that's hard to beat. It really is. I mean, we're talking now about a price that is down almost as low as like, you know, TP-Link wired access points. All right. Well, if the price is pretty good, we also need to know about the performance. How does the Eero deliver? It's really surprisingly good, given what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about a very inexpensive kit. We're talking about a dual band only kit. Not even the router is tri-band. So... I expected it to be decent because it's Eero and they haven't really made anything that wasn't decent, but I was kind of blown away with how well it did. I have a really nasty torture test that I do over at Ars Technica now. (laughs) Yeah. I set up four laptops all around a very large house and I have all four of them simultaneously streaming video and doing my web browsing latency test at the same time. I do these tests two different ways, and one of them, all four laptops are streaming 1080p. That's only a five megabit stream, but it's enough that it really puts pressure on the network, and you know you frequently start seeing some pretty bad latency times in the simultaneous web browsing tests. The really ugly torture test is 4K to all four laptops. Now that means 20 megabits a piece times four to pass the streaming side of it, and you've got to do respectable web browsing, you know, with low times to load web pages on top of that. Greatly to my surprise, Eero managed it. That's tough because there's a lot to manage at the network level. You've got all this data that has to actually make it through. And at the same time, you want to have good latency with respect to other consumers on the same network. I I never expected Eero to actually pass that one. Uh, When I first designed the 4K torture test, I didn't think anything was going to pass it. I mean, that's a lot to ask. Four separate 4K streams and you want web browsing latency to be good all over the house while that's going on. That's nuts. Right, that's a workload I would think, well, I'm just going to have to go wired. Yeah, the the Plume Superpods managed it, and I was impressed when they did it with, you know, much more hardware-capable tri-band access points and more of them. Uh, My Plume Superpod kit had uh, four pieces. The Eero is dual-band only and three pieces and only cost, like I said, 250 bucks with no sale, 190 bucks right now. And uh, don't get me wrong, it's not even coming close to knocking the super pods off of the top of the mesh performance heap. But being able to deliver that experience competently for that low of a price, yeah, I was impressed. Okay, well, do they have any tricks up their sleeve then? How are they doing so well? I think it really boils down, West, to, you know, having had several years to really refine their Wi-Fi game, not being focused on price, being focused instead on making a really solid, technically innovative product and then getting acquired by Amazon and having Amazon bring their, this is how we make things less expensive expertise in on top of that. You kind of get the best of both worlds. It has retained a little of its former character, at least in the fact that you've got to use an app to manage it, right? I mean, that may be different for people who are used to more web GUI based devices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Wes, that's true of almost all of the mesh kits out there. If you're allergic to the cloud, and you just want something that you can set up with no internet connection whatsoever, you just want to browse into a local IP address with a web browser and operate the product, the only two mesh choices I'm aware of are Netgear Orbi or D-Link Cover. And Orbi is really the only one of the two you should be considering because while Cover does perform pretty well, the price-to-performance ratio is not good, and there are some serious irritants with the user interface and the management on Cover. 
Well, what did you think of the app, right? You've used it a little bit. You've deployed it in your own home. And you're, you know, let's say a classic sysadmin type. I can't imagine it would be a natural fit for you. No, it's not my favorite. You know, I like a full-featured experience of sitting down at the desktop and, you know, getting the interface up on the big monitor and yada, yada, yada. But, I, you know, I will say, uh, as phone-based app management goes of a Wi-Fi system, Eero's app is on point, man. Uh, it was incredibly easy to set up. I was done with the entire process in under 10 minutes for all three pieces. And uh, the app is very discoverable. It's easy to navigate and find all the things and the bits and the bobs and use them and make them go. The other thing I will say that did actively irritate me about Eero is there are, you know, it's it's got some family filtering features and those are hidden behind a paywall. You need to pay, and it's not a whole lot of money. You got to pay $30 a year if you want to, you know, filter your kids' internet access. Okay. I don't mind that part so much, but what really did irritate me, I felt like it was a cheap cash grab. One of the features that gets enabled for that $30 a year is being able to force safe search on Google. Now, that's not work that Eero is doing. That is literally all on the Google side. And hiding that part behind the paywall, I didn't like that at all. We've got another update to something we've talked about quite regularly on this program. And this time, it's some great news. It looks like WireGuard is finally getting closer to landing in the mainline Linux kernel. WireGuard! Yeah, Wes, I'd say at this point it's a lock. It got pulled into David Miller's NetNext kernel source tree. And, uh, you know, when the 5.6 kernel development stage goes live, NetNext gets pulled into the tree and becomes Net. And, uh, you know, that's the networking stack. So barring something going incredibly, tragically unforeseen wrong, we're going to have WireGuard built into mainline 5.6 kernels. Can you remind us a little bit about why it took so long? I mean, WireGuard has been pretty great since the first day it was announced. And it seems like even back then, the kernel community was at least interested, but it's been a long time since then. It hasn't been a long time since then, Wes. You know, I mean, it's like the difference between people years and dog years. It takes a while to get an entirely new project incorporated into the literal Linux kernel. Uh, you can't just call up your buddy and say, hey, man, go ahead and shoehorn this into the next one. Doesn't work that way. It's certainly something I've been looking forward to. I mean, it's not to say WireGuard is hard to use now. There's tons of different ways to consume it on mobile devices, on Linux, on other operating systems, including user land implementations. And it's definitely one of the better behaved DKMS modules I've ever used. But having it in the mainline kernel will just make everything smoother, easier, and mean it'll stick around and be maintained for years to come. That said, just because it makes it into mainline doesn't necessarily mean it'll be on a kernel running near you at the same time. Any ideas about when we might actually see WireGuard on a distribution that is widely used? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's just going to be a little bit too late to make it into the next Ubuntu LTS. Uh, Ubuntu is one of the faster-moving mainstream distros, and uh, you know, 2004 is coming up, but I don't think 5.6 is going to be ready. We're probably going to be looking at uh, 5.6 going into release candidate status at about the same time that the Ubuntu 20.04 is. So 20.04 is probably going to be on a 5.4 or 5.5 kernel. Uh, Donenfeld, the uh, you know the original founding developer for WireGuard, he has offered 
uh, on Ubuntu's mailing list, he offered to do backport work to, you know, put WireGuard specifically into canonical 5.4 or 5.5 kernels if they wanted to. No idea if they're going to take him up on that or not. Oh, that's nice. Well, I'm going to selfishly hope so, even if it doesn't make sense for the larger community out there. I've just fallen in love with WireGuard. Well, you know, I got to admit, I'm absolutely looking forward to not having to mess with, you know, DKMS loadable kernel modules because there have been a couple of times that, you know, a kernel module has gone a little wonky and I've ended up without my WireGuard interface after a reboot. It's been a little bit annoying and that will go away once it's in the mainline kernel. But I think ultimately this is not so much, you know, great news for us as already WireGuard users. It is a great news for the WireGuard project because being built into the, the, the kernel right from the get-go, that's going to have to increase adoption. That is a great point. And included in this update was another piece of interesting good news. It sounds like WireGuard 1.0, a stable release, is on its way out soon. It's hard to tell exactly when soon means, but uh, you know, Jason did mention in the comments on Y Combinator Hacker News, uh, he said that a 1.0 release is on the horizon. Well, color me excited, and when that's out, I'm sure we'll be talking about it again right here on TechSnap. That'll bring us to the end of this week's episode, but don't worry, you can get more TechSnap over at techsnap.systems including the full show notes for everything we've talked about today at techsnap.system slash 418. If you'd like more Jupiter Broadcasting productions, just head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. In particular, I'd recommend checking out User, Error, and Linux headlines. If you'd like more Jim, well, you can find him writing over at ours. And he's on Twitter, Jim Your at JRSSNet. I'm there too. I'm at Westpain, and the whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Thank you so much for joining us. See you in a couple weeks, everybody. <laughs>